Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. I'm your host, Michael Lerner. Join us now for a conversation with Binka Le Breton, writer, lecturer on environmental and human rights, and director of the Iracambi Rainforest Research Center in the Brazilian Amazon. Binka Le Breton, welcome to the New School. Thank you very much, Michael. Binka, you are a writer and lecturer on the environment and human rights. You live uh, on a Brazilian rainforest farm, and you run the Iracambi Rainforest Research Center. That's correct. And you've uh, lectured and and, uh, broadcast internationally on rainforest and slavery issues. Your most recent book is called The Greatest Gift, The Courageous Life and Martyrdom of Sister Dorothy Stang. Who was Dorothy Stang? Dorothy Stang was the most amazing woman. She was the sister of Notre Dame de Namur from Dayton, Ohio, who always had a passion to go and do something wonderful for God and who found her way to join the Order of Educators and did her training in the States, uh, went to Arizona where she met real poverty for the first time, and then in 1966 achieved her heart's desire of going to be a missionary and went to Brazil. And uh, what did she do in Brazil? Well, she arrived in 1966, which was at the beginning of the military government. It was... um, perhaps something she hadn't quite taken into account. It was also a very exciting moment in Brazil and in the whole of Latin America because it was the time when liberation theology was was bubbling up and people were beginning to take responsibility for their own lives. Uh, Dorothy and her sisters left the ordered world of North America, five little sisters in habits, and they arrived in the chaos and confusion and excitement of Brazil. And they went to the mission training school where some of the great theologians of the day, uh, you know, had studied uh, Gustavo Gutierrez and um, Don Helda Camara and Ivan Illich. So it was an immensely exciting moment, and it was a moment when the church was redefining herself. And the sisters uh, took part in this very enthusiastically and went up to the Amazon and started getting involved not only with religious education, but with the new theology of thinking through people's lives in the light of the gospel. So this was liberation theology? Liberation theology, exactly. And what did she do uh, as she uh, settled in Brazil? Well, the first thing that happened was that the sisters went up to the Amazon, which uh, was uh, then and still remains very largely a feudal society. So they found themselves living in an area on the edge of the Amazon forest, uh, run essentially by the large landowners. And their job was uh, originally to do religious education. And as part of this, they had to go out into the countryside areas very difficult of access. Roads were bad. You know, went in a jeep, went on a horse, went on foot. And their job was to accompany the priest as he did his annual visitation to every one of his parishioners. It was called the Desobriga. And during this, they would be staying in the landowner's house, and all the people would be summoned to Mass. And people would be married, and kids would be baptized, 
and this was the annual visit. And the sisters took part in this, and while they were doing that, they realized that the people didn't understand what church was all about. They knew they had to go. They knew their children should be baptized, but they didn't really understand what it meant to be loved children of God. So the sisters began to get involved in helping people value themselves and take responsibility for their lives in in the sense that the laity began to take a much larger part in the church. And the concept of the church as being a building was replaced by the concept of the church as being the people of God. On February 12, 2005, uh, Dorothy Stang, Sister Dorothy Stang, was murdered in cold blood. What happened? Uh, Dorothy was by this time living right in the heart of the Amazon forest in a, a very poor, very abandoned area of migrant farmers and in an area of, of tremendous conflict between the small farmers and the large landowners and land grabbers. And Dorothy had been working with the migrant farmers for a long time to help them to get um, possession of the land, to get titles to the land, and to, to learn how to look after the land. Traditionally, they would do slash and burn, which was very destructive of the land. And Dorothy had been working for many years with, with the small farmers on these issues. And the weekend that she died, she went into the forest very excited because she had finally managed to get government documents to prove that the land could really belong to the small farmers. And I think she felt that the large farmers and the gunmen who were hanging out intimidating the small farmers and trying to get them off the land, that they would understand that there was enough land for everybody and that the small farmers had the backing of the government. So she goes into the forest with uh, her friends and, and co-workers, and it's February, it's the height of the rainy season, it's really hard to get around, roads are muddy, and in she goes, and the first thing that she wants to do, it's going to be a whole weekend of, of meetings, and they're going to celebrate the fact that the land has finally been given to them. And the first thing that she wants to do is go and visit the community center, a very simple little structure, a little log cabin that the people are building in the forest. And when she suggests this, the farmers say, well, really, sister, you shouldn't go because it's, it's dangerous. There are gunmen around there. She said, no, of course we'll go. This is, our, this is our community center. This is our celebration. And she goes there, and she finds the gunmen and the land grabbers there. And she says, what, what are you doing? This land belongs to the people. And the chief farmer says to her, Sister, if you insist on bringing your people onto my land, you won't be able to count the number of dead bodies that will leave this place. Hmm. And the young Brazilian sister, Sister Nelda, who accompanied Dorothy and the others on this visit, said that when they turned to leave, the situation was very tense, the men were armed, and Dorothy, in a sense, had overstepped into the, the private space of the gunmen. She had sort of challenged their, their machismo, and everybody suddenly realized that the situation had become very tense and very dangerous. And the young sister describes that walk away from the gunmen as being the longest walk of her life, and she was expecting a bullet in the back at any moment. 
well, it didn't happen. And that night, the gunmen went to look for Dorothy, and they crept out in, in, the, in the forest, in the darkness, in the rain, in the night, and nobody saw them, and nobody heard them. And they went to the place where Dorothy was staying. But they couldn't see in. They knew that Dorothy was there. She was staying with one of the farmers and his little daughter. And they, since they couldn't see exactly where she was, they didn't shoot because they didn't want to shoot the wrong person. So Dorothy is, is unaware of this. And the next morning it stopped raining and the sun is shining and she's very excited and she gets up early and she walks alone through the forest, through the tall, tall trees towards the meeting. And she's got her, her bag with her documents given by the government, which will prove that the land belongs to the people. And she goes up the hill and around the corner. And as she comes around the corner, two gunmen step out. And Dorothy's at first a little surprised. And, and how we know what happened is there was one witness. And this was a guy named Cicero. Cicero was one of the, one of the farmers. And he was a little late, so he's running along behind Dorothy, trying to catch up with her. He goes around the corner, and he sees Dorothy and the two gunmen. So he runs into the forest and hides behind a tree, and he witnesses what happens. And the gunmen pull out the gun and point it at Dorothy, and Dorothy says, don't do this, don't shoot me. And the gunmen just look at her, and she puts her hand into her bag, and what she's trying to do is, is produce the documents from the government to show that the land now belongs to the people and that there's enough land for everybody and that it's no, it won't be necessary for it to be any more deaths. And the gunman looks at her and he shuts and he says, what are you doing? Have you got a gun in your bag? And Dorothy says, I have no gun. She says, my only weapon is the Bible. And she pulls out the Bible and she starts to read to the gunmen, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then she closes her Bible, and she looks at the gunman. And he looks at her, and his eyes are hard as flint. And he says to her, That's enough of that, sister. And then he pulls the gun, and he shoots her at point-blank range. And she falls to the ground. And the last thing she must have seen are his boots as he stands over her, emptying the barrel of his revolver into her body. Mm. What a powerful story. Now, you yourself uh, were born in Andover, England, I believe. That's right. And uh, you were uh, earlier in your life a concert pianist. You toured the world as a concert pianist. But you ended up uh, running the Iracambi Rainforest Research Center in the Brazilian Amazon. Tell us a little about your story. How first did you become a concert pianist? Tell us a little about the journey from Andover to being a concert pianist. And then tell us a little about how you went from being a concert pianist to running a rainforest research center. I think, Michael, it proves that there's always a chance for all of us to do crazy things. <laughs> I think my, my journey shows that. But uh, I was uh, born and raised in, in, in England, and uh, 
I came from an intensely cultured and musical family. I remember there were two grand pianos in the house from which I was raised. And I always loved music and wanted to be a pianist. So it seemed natural that when I was of an age, um, I would go and study music. I studied in London. I studied in Vienna. Tell us about your family. You said it was intensely cultured. What, uh, what did your father do? What was your mother in um, My father had been uh, in the army, in the British Army during the war, and he had been uh, liaison with the French government. So there was always a very strong sort of Anglo-French connection in the family. Mm -hmm. My mother came from a large, very interesting Scottish family. Her parents, um, she she lived in India as a child. Her father was uh, a general in, in the British Army in India. And so these these two um, created a, a very lively atmosphere where, where books and music and conversation and people from different countries were always coming and going. So I was raised um, in, in great privilege and great excitement in being able to be around people from different backgrounds and different countries. And we traveled a lot. And it was a, a very exciting um, background. Mm-hmm. And did you uh, go into professional uh, music early on, or did that happen after you completed your education? It, it Essentially, after I completed my education, I studied at the Royal College of Music, and then I studied in Vienna, and then I, uh, and then I married mm-hmm. and, um, and went to live in Kenya, uh, where I found it was a little difficult to give concerts because <laughs> I was living in the backwards. Right. Um, however, I pressed on. I had a piano, and um, soon my husband and I began to travel around the world, and we found ourselves in Washington, D.C. And from there, I was able to start my concert career. And I, what I tried to do, because I was interested in, in, in seeing my husband, um, was to travel. He was traveling in international development from Washington, and I tried to travel with him. Uh, so I would go, for example, to to a country, and I would be in the capital city, and I would be giving concerts there. And he would be out in the country um, doing rural development, and we would meet up. And, and that was a very successful uh, strategy and lots of fun. And we lived in different countries. We lived in India, and we lived in uh, Kenya, and we lived in Indonesia, and then we went to Brazil. And what year did you go to Brazil? Went to Brazil in 1984. Uh, Robin was working in the World Bank, and he went to a part of Brazil that I'd never heard of. It was called Recife in the northeast of Brazil. And it turned out to be one of the great cradles of liberation theology, which was already um, had been going for 20 years by that time. So we had no idea what we were going to get involved in. And when we went to Brazil, I found that I had been playing the piano for for 15 or 20 years by then around the world. And I found it was a very lonely uh, lifestyle because I was a soloist. So if things went well, I could take the honor and glory. And if things went badly, I had to take all the blame. It's rather like being a solo tennis player or something. So I was beginning to think of what... uh, my next career move would be. And while we were in Brazil, we discovered that it was the most exciting, uh, welcoming, big-hearted country, rather like North America. And we 
had been thinking for some time of going to work in rural development in the field on our own and not under the umbrella of a big international organization. So when my husband said to me, how about we go and buy a piece of rainforest and see if this sustainable development really works, I said, all right, well, we can try it for six months. I thought he deserved his chance. (laughs) And that was uh, in 1989, Uh and we're still there. You know, I have to tell you this, Binka. Uh, I, uh, after I finished uh, college, I had a Fulbright Fellowship to Brazil in 1965-66. So I came to Brazil at just the same time that uh, Sister Dorothy Lestrange came. And, of course, that was the, uh, it was a very extraordinary period. I didn't I didn't recognize it myself at the time. But in addition to being based uh, in Rio, I was a journalist and a stringer for the Washington Post. And I traveled throughout the country, including the Northeast uh, and including the Amazon. And in fact, uh, flew up to the Ilha de Marajó, which is a big island at the entrance to the Amazon, uh, where I... uh, stayed with one of these large landowners and experienced uh, firsthand the conditions under which, uh, uh, the near slavery conditions under which the, the agricultural workers were living there. I was also in Recife and traveled through the Northeast, the area that you describe. So this conversation with you brings back uh, uh, powerful memories of this uh, extraordinary country, which I've returned to since uh, and and share the same deep affection uh, that you have for it. How oh, very nice to hear. Yes. <laughs> so you you settled in the Amazon and created the Aracambe Rainforest Research Center, and you got interested in the issue of of slavery, and in fact uh, wrote a book before your book on Sister Dorothy Stang called Trapped, uh, about uh, modern-day slavery uh, in Brazil. Tell us a little about, uh, about modern-day slavery in Brazil. Well, first of all, Michael, it was something that I, like many people in the world, resolutely refused to believe that this sort of thing was still happening. You know, we had all heard of slavery in terms of the Atlantic slave trade, and, and I didn't really believe it. I had been working um, when I, when we moved to Brazil. Finally, I turned from a pianist into a writer, and I started investigating um, the forest and forest issues, and environmental issues, and environmental rights, and and that led me into human rights because I discovered that environmental and human rights were, were couldn't be separated. So I had started to write books um, about the... I was always writing about the Amazon because it was the most exciting subject I I could see, and I could see it out of the window. And uh, I did a book on a a Brazilian priest who was murdered in the course of the land struggles. And that book... Who was that? uh, His name was Padre Josimo. He was a very little-known priest. It was... about the time of Chico Mendes, the Chico Mendes case, you recall the rubber chopper who 
who was murdered, which caused quite an international stir in the mid-1980s. And the Chico Mendes case attracted international attention because Chico Mendes' friends um, actually brought him to Washington, D.C., and he made a speech at the World Bank, and people heard about him and, and really heard about the environmental movement in the, in the early days before it really existed in Brazil. Uh, but Padre Josimo um, didn't represent the environmental movement. He really represented the poor migrant farmers. Uh, so it didn't have the the attraction or the kind of sexiness of, of the environmental movement or even of the indigenous movement. He was simply working with poor farmers. Isn't it striking that, um, that just sociologically striking, that if there's a strong environmental connection, it becomes a headline and a symbol, Chico Mendes. Uh, if it is uh, indigenous peoples, uh, it can have a place on the agenda. But when you're just talking about poor people, uh, very often it's further down the symbolic list uh, in the media. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Padre Zuzimo was an interesting character because he was a very poor, um, came from a very poor family. He was the illegitimate son of a 14-year-old washerwoman born on the banks of the river, um, and he lived in great poverty uh, up in the Amazon and found himself at junior seminary and then at senior seminary, went down to Petropolis and studied with Leonardo Boff and became a priest, which could have been a way out of poverty if he had chosen that. But he didn't. He chose to go back. And he went back to work with the people in, in the emerging land struggle that was just beginning in the 19, 1970s and 1980s as the Brazilian government began to open up the Amazon for settlement. And so as Sister Dorothy, after him, and many, many another anonymous person, he was murdered. Well, that book went into Portuguese, and I began to work with the Pastoral Lands Commission, which is an arm of the Catholic Church um, that espouses the liberation theology. And they asked me if I would write, if I would investigate modern-day slavery, because they had started a campaign to eradicate slavery. So without really knowing what it was, uh, I set off to investigate slavery, and what I was looking at in particular was the slavery of the agricultural workers, as you, as you saw in Marajó. And these are men who come from uh, from the very poor, very dry northeastern area. And they have no land and no jobs and no prospects. So they're very easy prey. For the, for the intermediaries, the people who were hiring labor. In effect, for debt slavery. Sorry? For, in effect, for debt slavery. Exactly, it's right. debt slavery. So that off they go, and uh, they, are, they are enticed by promises of high adventure for real men, and the, the person who hires them will immediately give them $5, $10, and the moment they put that money in their pocket, they are in debt to, uh, you know, to the landowner. And so it is a kind of debt slavery, and I discovered that. And interestingly, the Brazilian government was formally accused of being a slave-owning nation uh, at the Organization of American States 
And Brazil is a very large, uh, heavyweight, serious country, and uh, they took that, and they, they acknowledged it, and they resolved to do something about it. And they have done and are doing something about it. It's easy for the president to say, we will eradicate slavery. Of course, it's not e so easy to do. But they did take really uh, concrete steps to try and deal with the slavery problem, uh, basically setting up a, a flying squad, which consists of federal policemen and labor inspectors who respond when they hear of slave cases and go in and try and rescue the slaves and um, sort out the labor problems. It hasn't been, hasn't been eradicated and probably never will be eradicated, but it, it's part of a program of education and providing alternative jobs for the, for the landless and the very poor. And definitely the, the, the idea of slavery is very much on the horizon in Brazil. People are beginning to understand it and beginning to take serious steps to try and deal with it. I'm talking with Binka Le Breton, writer and lecturer on environmental and human rights issues, the author of a new book called The Greatest Gift, The Courageous Life and Martyrdom of Sister Dorothy Stang, who was murdered for her work with poor farmers in uh, the Brazilian Amazon. And Binka is also uh, the director of the Iracambi Rainforest Research Center. And we'll be back in a moment after this break. I'm talking with Binka Le Breton, and Binka, uh, we've talked uh, both about your most recent book, The Greatest Gift, uh, The Courageous Life and Martyrdom of Sister Dorothy Stang, and also about your previous book called Trapped, about modern-day debt slavery in Brazil. Let's step back from the specifics for a moment and, and sort of go to 30,000 feet and take a look at what the situation in Brazil is today. Obviously, there's a, a much more progressive uh, uh, administration in Brazil than there has been in the past, uh, but the issues of uh, the rainforest uh, continue to be extraordinarily important. Um, there are many other developments. There is the uh, pressure of uh, uh, the interest in biofuels and soybeans from around the world. There is uh, the discovery of uh, large uh, gas reserves in the ocean off the coast of Brazil that uh, uh, may make Brazil a major uh, petropower. Um, how would you describe the, the sort of geopolitical context in which uh, the destruction of the Amazon and uh, the struggle of uh, poor farmers uh, is taking place today? Well, that's a really interesting and a very complex question, but I'll do my best to address it. I, I think um, the eyes of the world have been turned on the Amazon for uh, many years now. And starting probably back in the 1950s and 1960s, when, when rumors began to come out of the Amazon that that the real wealth of the Amazon was not the trees, but was 
was what lies beneath the forest floor in terms of huge mineral resources. And from that time, from the 60s and 70s on, the Brazilian government, which had really ignored the Amazon because the major cities in Brazil and even the capital cities then, Rio de Janeiro, were on the coast. And anybody's ever seen the Brazilian beaches, it's easy to understand why Brazilians would cling to the beaches. And in the, in the 50s and 60s, conversations started to take place in the Northern Hemisphere about the Amazon in terms of being the heritage of mankind. And the Brazilian government got very concerned about that and started the whole development of the Amazon, which led to massive deforestation and the social problems that accompany it. Now, it's easy for us in retrospect to, to blame the government. Um, and at the time, people didn't know that the soils in the Amazon were not very rich. They assumed that because the forest is so exuberant that the soils must be rich. Now we know better, but then we didn't know. So fast-forwarding back to, to you know, 2007, 2008, there is the Amazon. Much of it has been destroyed. Serious attempts are being made to conserve large areas of it. Um, serious attempts are being made to, to improve labor conditions, and uh, it's a socialist government that is really, really trying to improve the lot of the people. In the meantime, Brazil is always a country of booms and busts, and the, the bonanzas that you, that you just mentioned are that particularly the biofuel story and the discovery of oil and gas, um, not only offshore, but of course there's a lot of oil and gas in the Amazon itself. Added to which, uh, the Amazon possesses 23% uh, of the entire fresh water supply in the world, and there is immense potential there for uh, generating power from, you know, hydroelectric dams. So the government is, is, is trying, not very successfully, to create a, a, a sustainable development plan for the Amazon. It's very complicated. It's very large. It's very difficult to administer. It, it's hard to get there. It's hard to get around. It's a, it's a very lawless land. It's, uh, the government is not really able to control it very well. And at the same time, sorry, at the same time, the, the, the agricultural frontiers are sweeping into the Amazon from the south and from the east, and the Amazon forest itself is getting, is getting squeezed. Under the pressure of the interest in soybeans and biofuels and the like. Exactly, exactly. And, of course, we're in the middle, financially, of an extraordinary bull run in the... Uh, value of commodities like uh, soybeans, like biofuels. So this must add an extraordinary economic push to the underlying uh, interest in, in cutting down the rainforest and using the land. Well, it certainly does. And I, I think two of the sort of major things that have come out of, of the Amazon in the last couple of years have been, first of all, in well, 2005, there was a major drought in the Amazon, which is completely counterintuitive. The level of the rivers fell so drastically 
that whole populations who live on the rivers and had no road access were isolated from the rivers, which were the source of their sustenance. And the Brazilian government actually had to airlift water into the Amazon. And this was, I think, a real wake-up call to the government that uh, what people had been saying about deforestation was really beginning to affect not only the rest of the world, but also Brazil. Well, after, after that, the government did take steps to try and curb the deforestation. But again, in December 2007, the figures which have been recently released show that there's a sharp increase again in the rate of deforestation. And President Lula does not appear to see any correlation between that and the very high price of commodities. Uh, what What is a, a good visual image for the speed with which deforestation is taking place in the Amazon? A football field, a minute, that kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it is horrendous. And when you fly over the Amazon in, the, in August, which is the burning season, it, it's just a, a carpet of flame and smoke. And we know, uh, uh, listeners may not know, that, the, that these rainforests are in some important sense the lungs of the planet, that they are essential to the, the ecological uh, sustenance of the Earth as a whole. Yes, well, everybody has been talking about this for a long time. It's been a very sensitive issue with the Brazilians, as you know, because they could say, well, you guys are talking about uh, that we shouldn't cut our forest, and you all cut your forest centuries ago, and look how rich you are. Right. So so the, these, are, these are delicate international issues, but I do think that the Brazilian, Brazilian government has, has woken up to the danger of extensive deforestation. And the other really exciting thing in Brazil has been the, the massive... Um, sort of rise of, of non-profits and NGOs. The civil society sector in Brazil is alive and well and going places. And this is partly due to the fact that we're, we're connected by the Internet. And let's talk a little about Brazilian civil society and also about the impact of uh, international NGOs and foundations. Uh, you are obviously a, a very sophisticated observer and participant in Brazilian uh, civil society. What are, let's just start with a simple question. What are the major foundations and NGOs that are active in the Amazonian rainforest right now? Um, internationally? Yes. Um, the Friends of the Earth, um, Conservation International. Um, yes. Those two, for example. <laughs> I think I would take those two to start with. And let's yeah. just take Conservation International. Uh, Conservation International has received a tremendous amount of funding from some very large foundations in the United States, and its activities in Latin America have not always uh, been greeted with uh, uh, complete support by uh, smaller uh, non-governmental organizations. How would you describe the track record of Conservation International in the Amazon? Um, may, may I turn, turn that question to, to the small NGOs uh, and the reason that most, the bulk of the money goes to the big NGOs, because I think whichever they are, I, I think this happens because 
corporations or, or people who fund big NGOs feel secure with a known quantity. And uh, these large organizations have managed to certify themselves as being reliable. And this is why they continue to, to get the bulk of the funding at the expense of the small NGOs who perhaps are, are better qualified as being more grassroots-based and, and more Brazilian to do the job. And so uh, when these large NGOs come in, uh, they don't always come in with a real sensitivity for the uh, ecosystems of the small NGOs on the ground. I think that's a fair statement. Right. Now, in addition to being obviously in the center of the politics of the large and small NGOs in the Amazon uh, rainforest, uh, I'm curious about your, your relationship with the Brazilian government. It would seem to me that... Uh, you must have some kind of uh, uh, some kind of relationship with the Lula government, and and I wanted to ask you, how are you seen uh, uh, in Brazilian federal politics? Uh, how do you interact and engage on the issues that you care about? Um, probably working at municipal and state level rather than at federal level, Brazil being such a huge and complex country. And the work that, that, that is done you know, in the local community, because we are strong believers as, as members of the NGO community in, in acting locally while thinking globally. And it, it's very complex in a very large country like Brazil to... To, to see which way the, the ship is, is pointed. Um, it's easier to get a, a, a feel for what's happening in your own area. And then from there, we try to network with other organizations that are doing the same, the same kind of work. And there is a very lively and very well-developed network of NGOs. And I think the most exciting thing that's happening now is the the marrying of the environmental lobby with the human rights lobby. It's really happening for the first time, and, and perhaps the story of Sister Dorothy, to come back to that for a minute, um, symbolizes where the environmental and human rights lobbies come together, and together we're so much more powerful than we would be if we were separate. Do you face some of the same dangers that Dorothy faced in your... Uh support for um, the uh, for human rights and for small farmers and small NGOs? I think that people who go uh, against the powers that be by supporting um, those who need to be supported, and I'm thinking in terms of the very poor or, or, the, or the powerless, I think they do place themselves in the line of fire. Uh, on the other hand... Um, there is a great network of solidarity whereby people in those situations are supported by their peers. Hmm. So do you have a sense when you go out into small communities uh, of any danger, or do you have a sense that this support network is such that uh, real physical danger is unlikely for you? I think real physical danger is always present. And uh, 
You can turn off your cell phone. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> Just trying to show where you know we may be Brazilian, but yeah. we're modern. Right. <laughs> uh, no, I think I think the danger is is present, um, and perhaps it's something that you don't want to to dwell on for too long. You need to be aware of it, and I think if you think you're doing the right, if you think you're doing God's work, like. Um, you can't necessarily rely on protection, but you can rely on the fact that whatever happens, you will be all right. Mm-hmm. Going back to Sister Dorothy and the context of her death for a moment, uh, the Catholic Church in Latin America in general has had some very serious competition uh, over the last few decades from evangelical churches. Yes. I wonder if that's playing out in the Amazon basin as well. This, this is playing out across Brazil, but I think most interestingly, probably the greatest growth in evangelical church attendance is in the favela and the poorer areas of the big cities. And I think this is because when the Catholic Church, uh, when the liberation theology wing of the Catholic Church began to take an interest in, um, in, in politics, that people were scared of to a large extent and that the people who left the countryside and continue to leave the countryside to go to the cities where they find themselves very often without the skill set to live in the cities, so they're ending up in favelas and they are deracinated. They've lost their roots and they've lost their support system. And the evangelical churches will say to them, look, Jesus loves you and we love you and make a, a warm home for them, which perhaps the Catholic Church, particularly the Liberation Church, which is more challenging and makes people think about politics, maybe that's not so welcoming, and that's where the, the main growth of evangelical um, church membership is, is in the cities. At the, uh, at the international level, the Catholic Church certainly took a turn against this uh, liberation theology, um, does it continue to be an important and powerful living theme within the church despite the lack of uh, support from uh, a number of popes for it? Or uh, has, it, has it died to some degree as a living aspect of the Catholic Church? Well, I think it's fair to say, Michael, that the Vatican has been you know, radically opposed to liberation theology for some time, and that the, their response to this has been by uh, replacing the liberation bishops, for example, with more conservative bishops as, as the liberation theologians um, become older and, and are retired or have to retire. However, the, the fruits of liberation theology live on... Uh, are alive and well in Brazil. And I was reflecting on this the other day. For example, one of the reasons I I wanted to write the story of Sister Dorothy was to find out whether a life and a death make a difference at the end of the day. And in the course of my research, I would meet people living in very isolated areas in the forest, and I would say, "So, so... you knew Sister Dorothy, or you knew Padre Bujosimo, or you knew uh, one of the activists and one of the great saints. So what difference did they make to you? And I vividly remember a young woman I met um, saying to me, listen, 
She said, sit down and I'll tell you. She said, I used to be only a woman. I was illiterate. I was only a woman and I didn't even go to church because I couldn't understand that stuff. She's talking about the old days. And she said, I used to clean the church, but I didn't go in. And then when they came, and she was talking about Padre Josimo in the 1980s, when they came and they started telling us that, that we were loved and special children of God, the landowners abandoned the churches, and so the churches were empty. And she said, I remember sitting on the steps of the church, I cleaned the church, and the Padre came out and he said, come on in. And I said, I can't, I'm only a woman, and I can't read. And the Padre said, you may not be able to read very well, but you were born smart. Mm. And so I went into the church, and we went into the church, and we took part in, 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 in this whole new wonderful life, and, and we learned to read. And she said, and now I'm not just a woman, I'm a human being. And oh, that's beautiful. So that continues. Yeah, that continues. And I think, for example, in the case of Dorothy, Dorothy was a very strong leader, a matriarch. And when she was helping the people in the most abandoned areas of the Trans-Amazon Highway and building schools and, and getting people to, to create community associations and all those things she was doing, and when she died, they were a little bit lost because they didn't know what to do without a leader. But they were determined not to forget. And so when she died, there was both a combination of international pressure on the Brazilian government that justice should be done in the case of Dorothy. And there was pressure from the grassroots, from Dorothy's people, who chartered buses and drove for days through the forest and went and set up tented camps outside the courthouse and just, you know, insisted that justice should be done. And in the case of Dorothy, it's the first time in the history of Brazil that her, the killers have been tried, convicted, and sentenced within one year of the murder. So and the people, Dorothy's people, you know, are taking up the banner and they're going for it. Right, and that is, as you say, a, a rare event in, in Brazilian jurisprudence. Yes. Yes. So... When you say that the spirit of liberation theology lives on, does one find that in the, in the priests who are actually uh, in the Amazon now, even if the bishops, the liberation theology bishops are removed? Uh, do the priests uh, resonate with uh, Sister Dorothy's uh, message and vision? Some of them do, Michael. Some of them detested her. Some of them thought that she was a woman and had no business to be doing the, the political work and the work of the government. Mm -hmm. But I think the spirit of liberation theology lives on most amongst the people mm -hmm. because it's taking the power away from the priests into the hands of the people, and, mm -hmm. and, and they're working together. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the future of liberation theology mm -hmm. will be. Finally, Binka, tell us more about the Irakambi Rainforest Research Center, where you, you live and work. Uh, you have a wonderful website uh, for people who <laughs> want to look at it. Uh, but uh, tell us what you do there. Well, we work in an air, a, a big conservation area of very beautiful forest. And 
the small farmers in our area, we're in the mountains. Small farmers are growing coffee. And the price of coffee is always going up to us, the consumers, and always going down to them. And so they need to find some alternative crops, but they don't have the money and they don't have the education and they can't really take risks. So what we're doing is is looking at new ways of finding value from the standing forest without chopping it down. And this could be by by finding medicinal plants that are native to the forest or by going into the carbon credit market now or water credits or ecotourism, whatever it takes to help people to live better with the forest without destroying it because they'll do that if they can make money out of it. And what have you found works for them? I think what works for them is... is just working together with them to say, hey, we can, we can do this stuff. For example, in the area where we are, it's very isolated, and there was no school, no health post, no roads, nothing. And we sat down and talked about it with, with the community, and we discovered that we could petition the state governor to set up a new county, which meant that we would get federal funds, which meant that we would get schools and health posts and roads and Internet. And so that happened. It was hard. It was scary, but we managed to do it. And the, the real outcome is not the schools or the health posts or the Internet. The real outcome is, is the change in people's heads. We can do it. Well, that's extraordinary. How long ago did you get this new county created? Um, about 10 years ago. Uh-huh. And we, we had to talk a lot about citizenship because people hadn't really voted. You know, the military government cast a very long shadow. And even if it wasn't still there, people had had no experience in voting. And, and they were accustomed to being uh, repressed, right? So the idea of, of standing up and, and being counted and, and participating... Was a, was a little scary, but they discovered that they could do it. And once they start, you can't put them back. Now, you also have uh, researchers and volunteers come down to work with you. Uh, what can people do if they want to come down and uh, experience what it's like to work with you? Michael, you know, we've got jobs for everyone. I mean, we have people from the 18-year-old school leaver who wants to change the world you know, to the 70-year-old retired college professor, to the midlife crisis lawyer, to the journalist. And we, our aim is to show people and share with people this wonderful forest and this wonderful area. And there's always an exchange of skills. So suppose I came down, would I fly to Rio first? You would fly to Rio. And then where would I go? Well, um, you, would, you would travel about five hours. We are in the Atlantic Forest, which is a forest that goes around the coast. And you would travel about five, five or six hours in an excellent bus up into the mountains. And when you got to the ne- nearest town, everybody would look at you and they'd say, you are going to Iricumbia. You would <laughs> smile. <laughs> and so from there, it's how far? And from the, from the nearest uh, bus stop uh, in the village, it's about eight kilometers. And you might, uh-huh. you might find the Volkswagen Beetle taxi if you were lucky, uh-huh. or you might come out on the back of a horse. Uh-huh. But you would find us. And where would I live if I was there? Um, you would live in a house. 
So you have housing for your volunteers? We have lots of houses. Uh-huh. And the thing we find is that people come from different backgrounds, different nationalities, different languages, and they're working together in a little house in the rainforest, and there's no television, so they sit around and talk. And you wouldn't believe the creative things that come out of those collaborations. And how many people tend to be at the center at any given time? We'd have an average probably about 15 international students and volunteers mm-hmm. and about five staff. Uh-huh. And how large is the sort of population catchment area around you that you relate to? How many Brazilians uh, live in, in your part of the rainforest? But we're in a mountain, a mountain valley, and it's interesting that inside the valley, um, until the last five years, perhaps, people went around by horse. So people only knew people within horse reach. And now we're beginning to get motorbikes, so this means that people get to know people who live within motorbike reach. And so our sort of social circle is expanding. But in the immediate area, the immediate community would probably have a, a couple of hundred families quite widely scattered. In the valley? In the, in the, in the valley and tucked away in the, in the folds of the mountains. Right. So if I were walking in the valley, uh, would I run into little houses and uh, little clusters of, uh, uh, of residences, or would it be long periods of time before I saw anyone? Well, you would find uh, little individual farms, so mm-hmm. small, very pretty, well-kept little white-painted houses mm-hmm. with piled roofs and um, a little garden and a little coffee field and a cow. And then you would walk for a while, and then maybe you'd find another one, or maybe you'd get lost and land up in the forest. (laughs) And the nearest town, eight kilometers away, how large is that? Well, it's so small that if if you sneezed, you would be through it. Uh Um, But it has a population of about 1,500, and that is the new county capital. So the thing of which we are most proud is that it's the only place with any paved highway in the entire county, and the paved highway is in the main square. How far is it to the nearest town of any size? About an hour and a half, depending uh-huh. on the weather. Uh-huh. And what is that? Uh, it's a town called Muriaye. It's on the main road that goes from Rio to Bahia. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a sort of typical large farming town with a population of maybe 50,000. So this is big time for us. So you welcome uh, volunteers uh, to come down and work with you? Absolutely. We love them. And they find us through our website. And uh, the most amazing people come to us. So mm-hmm. people are welcome. So, Binka, after these years that you have dedicated, you and your husband have dedicated to... Uh, working on behalf of uh, poor people in the Brazilian rainforest and on behalf of sustainability in the rainforest and doing your work on uh, slavery and uh, just the, the, the global crisis that is so powerfully present. Uh, what is it that sustains you in your work? What is it that uh, you reach down to uh, to support uh, what must be a rather arduous way of living. Do you know Brazil is the most exciting country to live in? Do you remember that? I do indeed. <laughs> and I, I, think, I think one of the things is really looking out of the window and seeing things change, 
seeing that the kids today are wearing shoes they weren't wearing shoes 10 years ago, seeing that there is a school, seeing that seeing the people who work with us taking part and not just saying like they used to say, you tell me you're the boss. Now they come in, they sit down, and they lecture us, and that's great. Oh, that's wonderful. Can I sing you a song? Please do. This is a song that I learned when I was living in uh, Brazil, and it was about the, uh, the Castelo Branco uh, dictatorship. Yes. And it goes like this, and then I'll translate it. Castelo, por favor, vai embora. Minha alma, quem chora, esperando seu fim. Fez do salário uma meia fantasia. Não posso mais comer penar. Quero voltar aos tempos da democracia. Quero de novo voltar. Well done. And the great. translation is, Castelo Branco, please go away. My soul is crying, waiting for the end of your regime. You made of our salaries a semi-fantasy. I can no longer eat bitterness. I wish to return to the times of democracy. I wish to vote again. And That's that the story, isn't true. it? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Binka, please tell us what your website is. Our website is www.irakambi.com, and I'll spell that. It's I-R-A-C-A-M-B-I. And also, if somebody just Googles your name, Binka, B-I-N-K-A, Le Breton, L-E-B-R-E-T-O-N, uh, you will quickly find your way to your website. You're right. Great. Binka Le Breton, thank you so much for being with us at the New School. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website where you can subscribe to our podcast and find further information about our guests and programs. Our website is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. Or you can go to www.commonweal.org and click on the new school and get to our program that way. Thank you for joining us at the new school.